Welcome to the Worldly Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Holly. And I'm Luke. We invite guests on this podcast to explore themes of worldly wellbeing. And by listening today, you're joining the conversation. Today's episode was recorded with Andrew Cunning, who's based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. I've been familiar with Andrew's work for a little while and was really looking forward to getting stuck into this episode with him. Uh, It's a really juicy conversation, so we hope you enjoy it. Hi, Andrew. Lovely to see you. Hi, Luke. Hi, Holly. It is lovely to be with you. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for joining us all the way from... Um, Sunny-ish, South Belfast in in Northern Ireland. We had almost a flood yesterday, but today is relatively sunny. So I'm in a little apartment in the south of Belfast. Wow, lovely, with almost biblical weather. Well, I was going to say, we had biblical wind yesterday. Mm. Um, Yesterday was uh, terrifying. Um, I was in Sainsbury's and people were gathering at the entrance because they were terrified of the judgment of the Lord. (laughs) like an Irish apocalyptic scene. <laughs> um, so before we, we delve too much deeper into that, Andrew, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself and maybe say a little bit about what you do? Yeah, sure. I was asked to introduce myself on Monday night and I struggle with the word theologian, which is what I'm encouraged to call myself because it either raises expectations or drastically lowers them to um, depending on who you're talking to. So I am a theologian by training. I have a PhD in, in English literature and theology and published a book on the theologian Marlon Robinson um, a couple of years ago. So I'm growing more comfortable with that awful word theologian. It's much easier to call yourself a teacher or a writer, but I'm leaning into theologian because the people who get to call themselves theologians um, dominate. Um so yes, I grew up in Northern Ireland um, and I am doing my work, which is public theology in the main, um, within the island of Ireland because there is not a huge amount of public theology beyond street preaching and uh, what you might expect public theology in Northern Ireland to look like. So that's what I'm trying to do and have been doing for the last few years. Fab. So if it's not street preaching or anything else, what exactly is could you give us a little tidbit as to what that looks like well i'm sitting in a place that's um so incredibly binary if that's a word um it is now it is now (laughs) and christianity here is incredibly increasingly binary it used to be catholic protestant and now the big divide seems to me to be conservative traditional and progressive liberal and my work began in the sort of progressive liberal tradition that's emerging here and then increasingly is getting a bit be trying to be a bit beyond the binary not in the middle of it but beyond it to try and see past try and go beneath it maybe rather than beyond it um to see the christianity that lies at its root um so i find myself not having many uh, friends because i argue with the progressives and the liberals as much as i do with the conservatives and i tend to agree with the conservatives um often enough about their criticism of the progressives, even if I don't share their sort of political conclusions. So um, that's what it looks like. And a lot of the time, it's just going back to the to text to reread. Um, and I do an awful lot of facilitation work um, with getting people just to read again, because quite often we bring our political opinions to the text and just make it say what we want. Um, so a lot of the work, a lot of my work begins there, going back to the words on the page. Um, that's why I, that's why I went into literature. Um, it's an easy way to get people around a table not to shout at one another. Mm. Uh, before we just go any further, I just wanted to say, um, Andrew, I do love an analogy. 
um, and I love baked goods. And I was kind of thinking when you said you feel like you're in between the two groups, you're kind of like a jammy dodger, really. <laughs> you are. You're the jam, which is actually the best bit. And you're also like a little jammy dodger. You know how the, the jam's kind of peeking through one end? That's you. You're infiltrating as well. That's a lovely analogy. It runs the risk of making me seem like a sort of jam-based liberal Democrat, though, caught in between. Um, I like yeah. to, I like to be beneath or above the jammy dodger rather than stuck in the middle of it. Do you know, we can work on this. We can work on this. But I, I just want to be a hobnob. <laughs> that is an excellent choice. Also, I just I the, the way that your mind works, Holly. It's like, how on earth did a jammy dodger? Spring? It's like it's so abstract. I mean, I can't remember the last time I even saw a jammy dodger, and yet <laughs> that is where your mind went to. It's a work of art. It's a it's a, it's beauty. It's we don't. It's best really not to question where my mind goes. Yeah. So. Andrew, you know, you mentioned that your PhD is uh, in theology and literature. Mm. Um, I mean, when I talk in, whether it's in public context or in kind of training that I deliver, I often kind of caveat my qualifications with a, they're slightly useless beyond the realms of, uh, uh, well, what the kind of things that I talk about. So, you know, I, I haven't quite managed to make myself subject myself maybe to a PhD just yet um but um, my 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 master's is in biblical studies um and my undergraduate is in theology which I you know you can make a joke that says actually in the real world they're not that useful but my sense is actually that there is some use to them uh and that perhaps the work that you're doing uh draws out that use and I'm wondering if there's something that you could talk about around there about the the impact of the kind of of study that you have done and continue to do in a lived out way that that is beneficial to local community. Mm. So to start with the question of usefulness, this is something I tell students all the time that the act of studying literature or theology is already a countercultural thing to do because it has no predetermined use. It's not um, useful at all. Um, you're not going to um, immediately go and solve problems in the workplace with um You'll have to do some extra work to, to make that fit the workplace. And that's that's why literature and theology and history are profoundly in themselves. The study of them is a critique of our culture that sees everything as only having value if it's useful, if it has an immediate application. And <clears throat> these things don't. And it kind of points up how for the last 3,000 years, sorry, the last say 500 years, we've started to think of things as value in terms of their usefulness. I think before that, things were ends in themselves. Mm. Um, things were were useful because they got us deeper into thought rather than uh, leaving our bodies which um, uh, and becoming workers. So I tell my students that all the time, this is not useful. Um, and in that way, it's incredibly beneficial. Mm. But it, theology has a huge impact. It's very hard I get frustrated with people who who get interested in things that I think have no meaning. Um, I was over here in a conversation today about um, buying property, and these people spoke for an hour about buying property. And I think, oh, you're going to be dead in, in 40, 50 years. Mm. And that if that's the depth you're prepared to reach, that seems like a life half-lived. So studying theology immerses you in the big questions that have bothered us for 4,000 years. It doesn't implicate you in any kind of answer. You don't have to believe certain things to do theology. Um, but it does invite you to ask the questions. And... It's kind of that thing, would you rather be a pig satisfied or Socrates dissatisfied, that old philosophical thing. It invites you into an awful lot of unhappiness because you start to see things the way they are. 
Um, <clears throat> but I find that that's a great agitation for for change to want to change things is to, is to delve into those foundational soily questions about why things are the way they are. So that's why literature and theology will always be part of what what I do, even though I can't make any money out of it as I'm discovering. Yeah, and I think that's what you've just picked on something really um, uh, kind of tangible for Holly and I when we've been kind of exploring conversations through this podcast, but also in our own kind of uh, explorations of the world and how we experience it and how what we think about it. Um, the, the more you begin to unpack things, the more questions you ask, the, the more you kind of uh, try to break apart the rationale that the, the system that's been kind of set yeah the more you can sit there thinking wow this is actually quite challenging wow this yeah. you know it, this is this is hard to process uh you know the whole you know pig happy socrates unhappy thing you know it, i hadn't i've not heard that before but it is that sense of actually some days you can have this overwhelming sense of everything is really broken and i don't have any answers to that i just know that the more i learn the more i realize things are broken um, yes yeah and I, I was teaching a course last wednesday and i started it, it the course is an introduction to theological thinking and i started by saying that the purpose of this is not to answer your questions it's to learn to ask better questions that's the end product um you might be left with your question but it won't bother you as much because now you've got a better one um that's the goal of theology is to reframe the questions to constantly be asking the better ones and quite often people who reject theology you know on the face of it are asking questions that are rubbish um you know like does god exist is is a boring question you know but what does it mean if god does exist what what might that mean is a much more interesting question and gets you beyond true and false um so yes i totally agree you're it to i think marlon robinson says something like to conclude is not in the nature of the enterprise so we're not aiming to conclude, we're aiming to keep a conversation going, uh, which is so much more human. I I presume then I, that um, in the work that you do, this this whole idea of kind of questioning and exploring means that there isn't uh, someone who has all the answers or someone who is necessarily right or wrong. Because so often I think we kind of speak to someone because we're, we're going to trust what they say because we want an answer or we want guidance. And actually, sometimes I just laugh because I think, do you know what? Do you think everyone in this planet is just blagging their way through? Is that what we're all doing? But there are some of us, sometimes we feel like people are correct or incorrect or have information or don't. Whereas actually, maybe we're all just people trying to figure it out. I think so. Part of the way we determine what we think is true is based on who we like. And if we like a person, then what they say is true. Um mm -hmm. And we would rather a familiar lie than an unfamiliar truth. Um, and, and we often we deceive ourselves in thinking that we're after the truth. Really, we're after connection. And if someone we want to connect with is saying something outrageous, we'll make excuses for them um, and try and make them more palatable. We look what happened in American politics um, with Trump. A lot of people who shouldn't support Trump ended up supporting Trump, um, despite all the lies he told. Um, but there's so many of those thinking traps that we fall into. Um, we, we're, we are much happier just believing the same stuff that the people we are with believe um they're not so i think we are we're not as dispassionate as we think we are um and for me the question's not really about truth because a lot of the big ultimate questions we'll never know if we're right or not but what we can question is ethics is it the right thing to do is that the right way to behave you can get much closer to that i think or make a case for it but we'll never know whether god exists or whether free will exists all these sort of big questions that keep us up at night um 
And I think theology is lovely, has a lovely way of shifting the conversation away from truth to ethics. Um, but that's only if theology is in the right hands. Quite often it, we leave the ethics at the door and we only care about the truth, um, which ironically then leads to really bad ethics. Yeah. And I think what you're saying there about truth and and the kind of almost that you, you're articulating what an echo chamber is yeah. uh, and how, I, you know, we've touched on this in other episodes. Um, I think we when we spoke to Brandon Robertson, we touched on this a little bit and also with Alice in Albania and probably with others, it's a, it's a common theme. Um, but this idea of, you know, we, we, information is curated, truth is curated for us based on what we've previously interacted with either. And we're either intentionally doing that by following certain people on social media or um, selecting certain news publications to read and not reading others. Um, or it's being done for us based on algorithms and, uh, you know, oh, we've noticed that your patterns of behavior look like X. So you're gonna, you we're gonna keep pushing you down the, and you're gonna keep then liking the same things. You're gonna keep engaging with the same thing. It's gonna, it's confirmation bias. It's mm-hmm. gonna keep affirming what you already believe. And I suppose my thinking and listening to what you're saying, I'm wondering if you agree with this, there's a role for theology that kind of, that the, the kind of process of, critical theology, critical discussion in dismantling that slightly um, or entirely. Um, and it come, it's okay to go in and challenge something and not come away having resolved it. Mm. Um, I think so. <clears throat> I think good theology always has a place for mystery, which is something that we don't have in the 21st century, a, a place for nuance and complexity. <clears throat> now, when I say theology, I don't mean theology as a whole because theology, like any other human project, has the same problems as anything else. And a lot of the theologians don't do it well. Um, but the best theologies have such a room for the unknown. Um, this is a Greek word, apophasis, which means negation or negative. And that's a whole branch within theology from the mystics to say that we can't say anything true about God. So we either don't talk at all or we speak in paradoxes. Um, and to bring that to the table in the 21st century is quite nice. Whenever everything is neatly defined in the systems and binaries, you're either this or this. Again, that's not to say that we need to be in the middle, but we just have to have room for the thing we don't know. And that's something theology is really good at. Um, something that science, it's interesting that theology is distinct from science in that, and that science thinks there's something we don't know and we'll find it out. Theology has always said there's something we don't know when it can't be known, um, which keeps you humble or should keep you humble. Because if it's true about that, it could be true about this. There's something here that we don't know um, and it can never can. So then we, then we get to the text and, we, and the whole point of, of reading together is to is not to get to the truth, but is to build a community around something we don't understand. But so often Christian history is, let's just set up a new church because I don't like what they said. Uh, we need we need to be a Methodist, we need to be a Baptist, we need to be a Unitarian because we didn't like that bit. But you know, that's we we come from uh, the Jewish faith, which is they just fight about text all the time and stay friends, um, which is something that, that the Christian tradition has completely forgotten about about how to disagree well. Um, about stuff they ultimately don't have a clue about. You're based in Northern Ireland where you're working and living. Could you, I think it would be helpful for probably Luke and I as well as other listeners, could you just tell us a little bit what it's like to be living in Northern Ireland at the moment? What's the situation like? It's so hard to talk about because it's like asking a fish to talk about its water. Um, I don't know what's distinctive about it because I've been here for almost 30 years. Um, at the minute, tensions are a little bit higher than they have been um, in the last 15 years, for sure. 
whenever I was six months old, the IRA um, blew up my hometown, uh, the centre of Coleraine. Um, and that was my only encounter with what became known as the Troubles um, in 1992. But since 1998, the Good Friday Agreement, things have largely been a little bit better. But recently with the dreaded B-word Brexit, things have been a little unstable. There's rumours of borders on the Irish Sea and then on the island of Ireland, which two distinct groups don't want for different reasons. Um, and I had an office on a road called the Donegal Road in Belfast, and that is where the riots started a few months ago. Um, Unionist loyalists came out to riot to protest against the protocol. So that was the first real large-scale set of violent nights we've had in a long time and it was about five minutes from where i live where things are being thrown over peace walls which are sort of the last remaining pieces of infrastructure from the troubles to separate catholics and protestants essentially unionists and nationalists so buses were burned and drivers were kicked off buses and you know you saw all that stuff on the news so it's an interesting place to be but i sometimes get annoyed with people who aren't from here calling this place dangerous it's not i could walk anywhere at any time largely um, in the same way that you could in Birmingham or London or wherever, any any city. Um, but what what is interesting is how attentive you are, how hypervigilant you are about language and names and accents um, and how politically weighted they are. So when you meet someone new and their name is Kiva, you, you've already made your assumption that this person wants United Ireland. They've gone to a Catholic school. They're probably not a Catholic anymore in terms of going to Mass. Um, but they probably have a, a, a certain politics. And then you have William, who's also come into the room. And William, Billy, however he wants to be known, uh, did not go to Catholic school. Um, he went somewhere else. So all these all these little micro signifiers, yeah. Irish on si street signs, and then you go to another neighborhood and there's no Irish on the street signs. How you say the letter H, is it H or H? reveals an awful lot about uh, your background. So these little things that no one else understands unless you're from here are little clues as to are you them or us. Mm. And so your work in kind of uh, the kind of theological and sort of spaces involving literature, um, it sounds like often is encouraging, prodding, nurturing, poking people to kind of start breaking down those binaries and start... Um, exploring beyond the kind of status quo, the, the binary nature of things. How does that look like? What does that look like in a, a context that is, you know, from an external perspective, quite binary? You know, we, we, we have the little that we're taught about Northern Ireland, this side of the Irish Sea, and, and, and as you referred to the troubles in inverted commas, um, you know, we're not really taught about that. So the little that we learn is, you know, it's, it's one side versus that side, uh, and the, the simple, the the reasoning is very, very simple. It's you know for these reasons and only these reasons. And obviously, nothing is ever quite that simple. But I wonder your work. How does that and the way that you approach your work? What does that look like in what can be quite a binary context? Mm. Um, I teach a little workshop around uh, reading that gets us, and I use the Bible because it's a shared language between Catholics and Protestants. Um, although I find Northern Catholics aren't as familiar with the Bible as Northern Protestants. Northern Protestants are big on, are very big on the Bible. Um, but I, I start that workshop by saying that we all have a have a rhythm of reading or a le a favoured lens by which we approach things. So I, I artificially disrupt that for them and say you're you're going to read with I'm going to give you a key word, and you're going to read with that in mind just to get out of your own head for a second. Um. 
so we do that with seven or eight different words. And then I say, well, what, what we could do is take away those words and substitute them for people's names. Um, so when I say read this passage with liberation in mind, read this passage with law in mind, read this passage with social media in mind, what I could be asking you to do is what might Siobhan say about this passage? What might John say about this passage? Just to try and develop a little bit of empathy through reading. Because if you try and get people, myself included, to do that without a text in the middle, without the buffer, um, we, we lean away. Whereas to, you know, to read together means that we lean in uh, to, to discover together. And it's that place, not in the middle of the binary, but beyond the binary that we're trying to get to. Um, there's a lovely quote that I've been working with this week. I'm going to actually see if, no, it's not going to be pulled up, by Krista Tippett. She, you know, Krista Tippett hosts the On Being podcast. Mm. She says, um, I can disagree with your political and religious opinions, but what I can't disagree with is your experience. Um, once you've told me your experience of something, then you and I are in relationship. And while we still disagree, our disagreement doesn't define what is possible between us anymore. Um, so we still belong to that binary, but we can start to see a space that's above it that we can meet at while still retaining our deeply held. That's the thing, because we're not trying to change people's minds about the border. And I think a lot of peace work was trying to change, soften people's opinions about the border. But rather, we want people to believe what they want, but still be able to do community well. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's the really tricky bit. And yeah, there are people far better at that than I am. And actually, now I see your point about my jammy dodger and you, because I think there is something quite different to rather than finding a space in the middle, it, sort of suggesting that there's a sense of compromise from either side. But you, you're meeting in a space above, which isn't attached necessarily. You can't necessarily see the limits of that. Mm. And it's somewhere where, yeah, people, you can still be yourselves. It's not saying you have to renounce like your your belief or whatever yeah. your opinion is, but... I, I like that idea of sort of, oh, it's just rising above. And uh, it's a little bit like, you know, when my mum used to say to me, you know, rise above it, Holly, when my brother was being really annoying. Yeah. Um, I'm like, yeah, I still found him annoying, but I didn't need to react in a certain way. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, <laughs> <laughs> to do that well, both people need to feel safe. Mm. Um, you know, there's no way you're going to to meet someone, encounter someone properly if you don't, if you feel that they're going to disembowel you, you know, Mm. metaphorically or, or literally like we recently got a cat and it took the kitten two days before he lay on his back and showed you his belly so you could give him a belly scratch i just think that's what we all want to do we all want to lie on our backs but we're so on guard and you can only ever do it when you feel safe when you feel the other person isn't going to maul you when you sleep yeah and i think that's partly the problem with discourse now conversation now is it because it is so polarized you're either us or you're them you are constant particularly in online spaces mm. everything is so volatile uh and everything descends very a lot of things don't want to be quite so sweeping in what i'm saying a lot of things can descend into you know uh, can uh, an attack if you don't think like this if you don't agree with me here, then you must be an X. You know, you must be wrong. You must be, you must hate all people. Um, but this idea of stepping back from that made me think of um, the work of a guy called um, Charles Eisenstein, who I'm, I'm reading a lot at the moment. He's based in the US. And he's he's been kind of riffing on the Buddhist idea of interbeing, which actually there's, you know, a number of faiths would actually find a lot of... Um, 
similarity uh, and find a lot of home ground in that, even within Christianity. But he he argues that we're moving out of this age of separation, Mm -hmm. um, which, as you know, Andrew, you referenced the last sort of 500 years and say, I would say the last 100 years or so where technology has improved our lives in inverted commas in so many ways is also encouraged us to be very separate. We're now moving out of that phase and into a phase of interbeing and, and connectivity um, and trying to now find, kind of talking about what you were just referencing, our feet again in how we can communi- still keep hold of our beliefs, still keep hold of what uh, we, how we identify but how we can recognize each other's common humanity. Yeah. I I think I wrote something down before we came on the podcast, which is really close to that. Um, That division, the divisions that we invent, whether they be Northern Irish or whatever are, are superficial, which doesn't mean that they're not real, but they're, they betray the reality. As you say, that the being itself is what unites us. The fact, Mm -hmm. you know, existence unites us and that we're literally made of the same stuff. Um, but then that turns into sometimes this sort of uh, rubbish, diluted liberal thing of saying, well, we're all the same. Uh, you know, if you cut me, do I not bleed? I think that sort of trying to paper over the cracks of difference is so rubbish. Um, you know, you become more yourself when you become more yourself and less, you know, and not more like everyone else. So I think Presbyterian should be very Presbyterian and Catholic should be very Catholics and Muslims should be Muslim. And then that way we discover our common humanity, not by leaving all that mm. behind and meeting in the middle, but becoming more specific. And uh, there's this, uh, one of my favorite theologians, he probably isn't even a theologian, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, 19th century American thinker, says that um, people think that travel solves everything. You know, if you go to Egypt or Beirut or where, wherever, that you know, that will broaden your horizons. And yeah, largely, but he said, and I'm paraphrasing mightily here, if you're an asshole in New England, you're going to be an asshole in Belfast. So become more yourself, you know, attend to yourself. Um, there is a universal humanity, but you'll only recognize that whenever you get in touch with who you are. And sorry, one, one thing that you said that sparked me, um, the whole online stuff, the Twitter is the most, for my money, disembodied place imaginable. And it's no coincidence that such a disembodied form produces such vitriolic evil responses to people because you can only be that cruel when you're just talking to digits on a screen or to an avatar and and the theology keeps you know the central christian idea is incarnation is calling us back to bodies it's not calling us away and, and social media has that opposite pull we become completely cerebral completely intellectualized you are your opinions you're not a body anymore you're just what you think you know it's the whole day card i think therefore i am i think therefore i exist i have opinions therefore i matter um and theology has the opposite pull which I, which i think my generation have totally missed out on us as, as the twitter generation am i right in getting from that that we have a two-stage thing of reconnecting with ourselves to make sure that what we're working on or who we're trying to build up is behaving. Is that correct? The behaving in the kind of way that is true to ourselves that we should, in a way that we should be, before being secure enough to Mm. connect with others who have different opinions. I mean, have I just completely simplified that into a really not correct way? Well, no, I think that's spot on. It's, I had a conversation with someone last week 
and they said they were at a gig for the first time in about a year and a half and they said it was amazing it really took me out of myself for an hour and a half and I went away thinking that doesn't feel right and then I thought no it it didn't do that so we met up again it it didn't take you out of yourself it took you back into yourself mm. that's so so often people go to religion or to mushrooms or LSD or whatever to get out of themselves but what's really happening is they're actually getting for the first time in a while they're being back in their bodies mm. that's what we're transcendence is wrongly named we think we're transcending our brains but in reality our brains are or our minds are coming back in touch with with our own rhythm um because we equate life you know with just behind our own eyes because mm. that's the that's the western way you know the body is something we have to lumber with we have to just carry about from moment to moment but really we're just brains and minds so this notion of getting beyond ourselves is actually no it's, it's getting into ourselves um, yeah and i think that's why like and if you are playing yoga bingo with luke then this is where you get to get your prize because there's me mentioning yoga again but this is why like the yoga principles really have resonated with me particularly this past year is that it is about being in your body mm -hmm. it's not about finding some spiritual plane in which you're meditating upon a cloud but rather finding something more about yourself within yourself very physically on the mat um and this this principle of like filling up your cup before you go out and fill up others yeah. you, you know we need to work on ourselves physically mentally emotionally spiritually before we can enter into these th these conversations these dialogues these spaces in which we're encouraged to interact with the other um and i think more and more people are waking up to that my sense is that there is a movement towards wrecking that whether that's through mindfulness or, or meditation or you know eating better or going for a walk every day more and more people are waking up to the fact that the, uh, this element of inward care, self-care, I don't like that expression, but, you know, th this idea of mindfully tending to oneself mm -hmm. um, is needed. Uh, and I think we have lost sight of that as a species collectively, but there is a, a shift towards reconnecting with that, which I find really, I, I find quite profoundly exciting. Like on the days where I'm feeling a bit low and a bit like, oh gosh, like humanity's doomed. Uh, actually, I'm like, no, there is a shift. There is movement towards the recognition of self, that embodied self. Yeah. Um, and that's why I do cling on to my faith, because uh, partly because of the incarnation. Christmas is my favorite celebration when it comes to the, the, the Christian church. And that partly is because I love like Christmas decorations and I love Christmas food. I got married at Christmas time. Like it is the best time. It literally is the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> but also because the incarnation is the most profound, like for me, the most profound thing. Uh, and I could wax lyrical about that for days. So I'm, I'm going to stop there. Uh, but there is this sense of the embodiment. There is power to that. And, and you know, there are so many groups that have been marginalized because we've tried to take that embodiment away from them, whether they're black or whether they're queer women. Uh, you know, we when we strip people's embodiedness away from them, we're, we're doing great harm. And I guess that is the perfect example of that vulnerability that inevitably comes from that relationship with self, but can be used really powerfully. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think rest and restoration and self-knowledge are really, are obviously really key, but something even just as important is to process your pain before you go and do something. Mm. So many people see of the world out of a wound 
or try to save the world out of a wound and then end up creating the same thing again that will hurt other people. Um, so while rest and things are really like absolutely crucial to sit with the reason you want to change the world and make sure that it's your own and not because you've been hurt. Um, being hurt is a good reason, but it needs to be dealt with before you go and scheme uh, um, because it, it will be always be coming out of a place of a no rather than a yes, um, which is, yeah, hurt people hurt people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if we could just flit back to um, the sessions that you were talking about um, and where you're using literature and specifically was the the Bible or a book and the act of reading as that sort of tool with which to explore these things. Um, why do you think it is that reading with others has this potential, this ability to um, make it happen? Well, there's a few answers to that. I get so excited about this because... I think reading is so exciting because it takes us into what we're at actually made of. So that sounds a bit metaphysical and weird. But I think the Bible is a collection of stories, and I think I'm a collection of stories. I might be more than that, but at root, I think I'm a collection of stories, which is why we're also terrified of Alzheimer's and dementia, because it, you know, that our personhood, we feel, is under threat when we start to lose our stories. Um, but that doesn't get rid of the stories that people tell about us either but i think part of what we are is in some sense a collection of stories that we tell ourselves and i happen to be the main character in all of them um which is why i i there's a brilliant video um you know the dictionary dictionary of obscure sorrows have you ever heard of that no oh, you're gonna love this so this guy or it might be a team but it's only a guy that i know um decided to invent words into the english language that we basically to invent words for experiences that we have that we lack the words for and he invented the word sonder i made this beautiful video that i've used about a hundred times when i teach and sonder means the realization that everyone else is as complex as you are and he uses these lovely little examples saying things like you were the lit window of the hotel room that someone saw on the way past or uh, you were the car that was being waved at from someone in the airplane and the people in the coffee shop you're their backdrop you don't matter. Um, it's really moving. Like people often cry when they watch this video because they realize that no, I'm part of a thing here. It's not. I'm not the. I'm not Brad Pitt. Um, so reading brings us into that. First of all, to what we are. We are. It's kind of a physical manifestation of what we are. And the second thing is, it gets us. It is when you read. It's the only time most Westerners ever have to listen without interrupting. Because um, you, you can't interrupt the author, you can set the book down, but you can't interrupt them. If you know, to read is to be genuinely empathetic, you have to sit there and be and take it in, um, and you're only offered the world through the perspective that you're handed, um, and that is often a new perspective, which is why reading is always so educational or often educational and really exciting. Um, so yeah, those are some of the reasons why I think reading is fundamental. That's really interesting. I've actually sneakily, I don't know if you guys noticed, had a quick Google on my phone for that book. Um, so we'll definitely, well, pop that. But actually, you've mentioned a lot of really great people and quotes that um, I think we'll try and pop those in the show notes as well for people to um, go back and look into in their own time as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and obviously links to the work that you're doing as well, Andrew. 
Um, mm. I feel like what I need to do is probably jump on the next flight to Belfast and just sit in a really nice coffee shop somewhere and just talk with you for hours because uh, <laughs> I could just keep going. Um, and the, the way that I talk as well, it does wrap it on and on. Um, but I think it's probably a good point to, to, to say thank you for your, your time and your energy and contributing to the Wildly Wellbeing podcast today. You've opened up, I'm sure, doors of thought for people in really um, uh, accessible ways. Uh, and it's been a really beautiful conversation. So thank you for that. No, thank you. I didn't know what we were going to end up talking about. So I'm, uh, I was surprised uh, as much as anyone. So I'm glad it was so it was so fun. Yeah, this has been really wonderful. Thank you, Andrew. Um, I've got a lot to go away and think about myself, <laughs> which I always love. Yeah, and I've already preloaded that video, that I think the right video that you were just referencing, <laughs> Andrew, so that's what, immediately what my homework is going to be. Yeah, so brilliant. Oh. So brilliant. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much. Um, and uh, I will look forward to speaking to you some more soon. Yes, absolutely. Let's do it. Thanks for having me. Okay, so one thing we have definitely learned is it is time for a cup of tea and cake for Holly. I definitely need some caffeination, uh, mostly to fuel activity that is going to involve watching some of those videos that Andrew mentioned and researching half the names that he mentioned because they all sound incredible and like the kind of people that I want to read more about. Yeah, I absolutely love it when um, not only do I come away buzzing from a conversation feeling like I've learned something, but also feeling like I have sneaky, inadvertent homework. Yeah, there was a bit of like uh, under the radar, oh, I'm going to go away and learn some more. Now, you kind of think if teachers did that in school, everyone would be far more willing to do their homework. Honestly, I can see why he is great in his in teaching role, because that was really sneaky. It was, but it was a really fascinating conversation and I genuinely want to kind of keep that going with Andrew um, and really just keep exploring some of those themes. And, and as we mentioned in the recording, I think it's so important to, to keep fostering that dialogue, first of all, to keep working on ourselves, but then to keep creating those spaces. And I think that's what we're trying to do here with the Wildly Wellbeing podcast is creating those spaces to engage in that conversation. Yeah, we're doing that floating above into that little neutral zone up above where we can just have those conversations and have that backwards and forwards. Floating Not, above the jammy dodger. Exactly. We're going above the jammy dodger. Um, and there's something else I wanted to say that's totally gone from my mind. Oh, yeah. And um, off, I was going to say off camera, off microphone, um, we have officially invited ourselves to Ireland. Yeah, when we finished recording, did uh, suggest to Andrew that a visit might be in order um, so that we can continue our conversation over probably caffeinated beverages and cake because that continues to be a recurrent theme. Exactly. But in the meantime, don't you worry, we will be back next week. If you are itching at the bit, is that the expression? No, and that sounds absolutely foul. Why is your bit itching? Chomping at the bit. Rearing at the bit. Chomping at the bit. Chomping. If you are chomping at the bit to know who we are speaking to next week, we're not going to tell you. Instead, 
we are going to sneakily, oh, there's also sneaky going on, sneakily signpost you to our brand spanking new Instagram page that we are lovingly nurturing into existence. Uh, and each week we will be giving you a little heads up as to the guests that we're inviting on the next week. So you can find us on Instagram with at wildlywellbeing. It still feels unnatural not to try to spell out our very complex old Instagram handles. It does. Uh, you can still find us if you want to, but we'll let you do that yourselves. Yeah. So don't forget to check out our website um, and our Instagram. And if you feel like it, leave us a little message or a like. Indeed. And also enjoy the newly revamped website. We're going to mention this a few times because we're very proud of it. And we're very grateful to another Andrew, Andrew Hankinson, for creating our new uh, logo. It's very swish. It's very shiny. And so we'll keep mentioning and dropping that into conversation so you can check out all of the exciting new things that we as the World of Wellbeing team are up to. Oh, team, you make us sound very official. So professional. So... In the meantime, we wish you joy, happiness, and a little bit of homework. Yeah, sending you lots of love and peace. Ciao for now.